Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Maxine Mackey, also of Label Sessions, talks to Manuel Maquette. Manuel is a leader of many organizations, including Bionomia, Viento, and most recently, Soup. All focused on driving people, companies, and organizations to find value and impact by radically changing how they think about sustainability. His life's mission is the integration of a vibrant, natural world with human progress. Let's hear more from Manuel. Hi, Manuel. Thank you so much for joining us today. So we know you at Label Sessions as an expert, innovator, and also teacher committed to restoring the balance of living systems. Um, but let me ask you to introduce yourself to our audience and help us understand what you um, do to restore the balance of, of, of living systems. Well, I'm sitting with that question, and that question is kind of running through all my work. Um, I'm, al I'm always seeking answers. I think that's the light of the innovator. I'm uh, heartbroken by the direction, both the beauty, arresting beauty of our natural world, of life and of human society and everything that has to offer, and also the direction in which we're going. Um, so all my work is mission-driven, and i become the founder of a number of Nonprofit organizations and impact businesses um, in different areas having to do with plastic pollution, some of that, circular well, regenerative economics, more recently AI. I become a teacher. Uh, I teach at the uh, continuing education division of the university. So I teach people like us, a professional lecture. It has a lot of impact because it's people that can, you know, turn learnings into action right away. And I teach applied circular economics and regenerative economics at Harvard. And uh, these two are combined into a circular economics certificate that I teach also at the Division of Continuing Education at Harvard. And I teach at other um, business schools and, you know, custom courses as well. Um, and I'm a practitioner. I'm not a, a you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of time for, for talk. It's um, time to act. And everything I teach is applied and focused on innovation and getting, getting things up and running and testing things out. I think you've been quoted as saying, it's not what you think, but it's how you think. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. I mean, through from my work, looking at emerging issues and how society reacted to them. Also, being a teacher, you get to look kind of under the hood and all of people's minds. Um, not all people leaders and I come to realize that a lot of the trouble we have in what we come call a sustainability have to do with the ways we think it's kind of the operating system so uh, of our thought and that's what it, why the eco economy is also interesting to me because that's the operating system of our society in a way and those and one is a reflective the other and there's things uh, kind of hardwired into that um, way of thinking that make uh, sustainability complicated for us. I mean, it's a new challenge. We got from like tribe-minded uh, uh, creatures that uh, hunted and gathered to having a globalized um, so society with a huge impact uh, on our environment. And now we have to become a planetary 
um, civilization, fostering stewardship of natural resources and living in a radical alliance with living systems, that's really alien. So yes, I mean, a lot of the sustainability thinking uh, puts a focus on the what, and I think it's the how, you know, and you, we hear this every day, like, oh, meat is terrible, tofu is wonderful, or oh, whatever, or electric cars are great, and the other cars are terrible. And it's really, when you look at it in a holistic perspective, using systems thinking, it's really how you convey, you know, how you find nutrition for people, how you take people from point A to point B. And ultimately, it becomes, you know, an innovation challenge, you know, uh, not so much an uh, effectiveness challenge. It's not an It's not about making our economy a bit less damaging or a bit more efficient. It's about hacking that operating system so it becomes effective. So you're a very interesting thought leader for Label Sessions for many reasons, but I wanted to surface something you mentioned earlier about your approach and invite you to share a bit more on it. You mentioned some of the um, companies that you've um, founded, and I think it's very much around your approach to restoring the balance in living systems and living sustainably, but it's very much alongside and integrated with human progress, like using AI and machine learning. And um, you've done some um, really interesting work in this space. And I think it speaks to what you're saying around the circular economy and hacking the operating system in which we are kind of existing. But talk to me about where technology and human progress can help restore this balance in, in, in living ecosystems? So we, we tend to put technology at the service of our current thinking. And that's where a lot of problems lie. Where a, a good example is plastics. Uh, you know, we invented this amazing, powerful technology, this material that is incredibly versatile. And, you know, um, you can do whatever you want. It can be flexible, it can be hard, et cetera. And very affordable. You know, it's taken the, uh, the it's succeeded so much that it's everywhere, right? Plastics. And, but there's two things that you have to be careful of plastic. One is because it's a dur very durable material that doesn't biodegrade. You should use it for durable uh, uses, not for disposables. And also because it contains toxic additives, you shouldn't maybe put your food and drink there. But we haven't um, followed a precautionary principle necessarily with it. So it's, the technologies are amazing. They unleash and they cut both ways, like Kevin Kelly and other uh, authors say. The, the more powerful the technology, the the greater its potential for good, but also its potential for, for bad. So um, technologies have to be embraced and accepted, and they are there also to show us, uh, to, to be a mirror for us on how we use them, you know, how we think again. So I'm always, um, I don't think we should just pause. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a Luddite that we should put a pause on, technolo on technology or run into a cave. Uh, but the, the more powerful these technologies, the more uh, we need to accelerate our, that hacking of our minds and operating systems so we can control them and not, yet, you know, become victims to them. And I think it's interesting because it's something that you were saying earlier around the, the, the regenerative and secular economy and applying new technology to solve some of those problems rather than treat them as individual things you mentioned you know electric cars they are good well the argument that some people might say you know petrol cars or diesel cars bad electric cars good it's not as simple as that there's a gray area there's obviously the complexity of 
um, batteries and building electric cars, but it's how technology can fit into this mindset. And I, I'm curious, I wonder if um, how much that's embraced by you know leaders in big organizations as well. It's certainly all over the map. In in general, the conversation, you know, humans are very, we gravitate towards uh, groups and uh, we like to compete and to engage with our peers. So sometimes the conversation starts um, getting momentum in a certain direction. Everybody just follows suit. That happens with leaders a great deal. First of all, cars, electric cars. You know, you have the conversation, well, electric cars, yeah, they're great, but actually out of the factory, they have more carbon emissions or whatever. Down the road, if you use them enough and the grid, electric grid is has renewables, then you'll get to a point, breaking a point where they're advantageous versus the, the other car, blah, blah, blah. And there's a whole conversation as well about end of life and e-waste and batteries. But actually, if you look at the usage of cars, in average, cars are parked 96%. So that conversation is about 4% of the problem. That conversation is so intense. We're talking just about 4% of the potential for disruption, which is 96% of the cars that are out there actually could be doing something else and not be there at all. So we're talking about environmental impact and maybe self-driving cars that you access whenever you want. And it, um, there's a lot in the how, there's a lot in the business model, there's a lot, a lot that is left out of the conversation. So that's the kind of conversations that I that I like to break open. So we go from a linear way of thinking to more exponential with this. Um, and that's, I think, where not that many leaders go there and they miss out on having that more systemic, uh, exponential and lateral quality that may radically shift their their mindsets. You mentioned some of the courses that you teach um, play at Harvard Business School around the circular regenerative economy, but really focus on the applied elements. Could you share with us a few of the insights and lessons you share with those that you teach? Yeah, well, it's actually uh, Harvard, uh, the University of Harvard Business School, and it's just a small, you know, there's a bunch of, Harvard is huge. Uh, but yeah, the, I, I don't teach at the business. Uh, I wish I did. and But a lot of my, um, a lot of my students are actually business people. Um, so some of the insights I, I share with them. First, one big insight is well just said it it's not what it's how we think and it's not what we do um also there's um some of my students come to my courses with an what i call the app mentality meaning that they want to put the my course in their brain like you would download an app into you with your phone they come to ingest the course and it's like okay so you're coming here to stick some concepts into your brain then move on to something else well that's not what this class is going to do um you know, we're going to put a focus on the questions, not on the answers, because if you don't ask the, the right questions, then doesn't matter how good your, your answer is, it's never going to be the right answer. So that's kind of a more meta uh, insight than in terms of more specific stuff. One is to pay attention to the material footprint, not only the, the carbon footprint, look at all nine uh, planetary boundaries as areas for um, both concern and also opportunity. Uh, this of which climate change is just one of nine. You know? um, so more holistic view of sustainability, looking at materials also. Half of the, even half of the carbon emissions are not caused by energy, are not caused by transportation. Even if we were able to decarbonize transport 
and uh, energy tomorrow will still have we would have half of the emissions still because those are uh, um, connected to the material uh, consumption in our world. So just a big there's a big elephant in the room uh, for most people. I think my question is like, oh wow, we've been talking. Everybody in COP 26, 27, or whatever it is, are talking about just half of the pie. Wow. Um, and that really enhances your, your view as an ecological thinker to look at material flows, material flows in the technical side, so man made things, and the uh, natural side, so things that are natural. And that's another thing they take they, the ability to look at our world as flows of technical things, things that nature cannot digest and biological things. And then looking at that balance, we realized that man-made things are doubling every 20 years, this exponential growth. And therefore we need to pay attention to a dwindling nature. That's where the regenerative economics course kicks in. We take it from there, from circular economy, which is about a stewardship of, of, um, of resources. And we go into, um, creating a balance with natural systems because natural system keeps us alive and there's a, a natural capital that uh, that is actually subsidizing our, our economy is not uh, factored in so we look at we look a lot of that from from the role of pollination in food uh, to you know the water cycles and all the other geobiological cycles and nature but based solutions so how capital markets integrate and those are big uh, you know big ahas and big Big things. So students in general, they le- they they leave the courses. They inspire them with um, the says that you know they're beginning. Uh, this is a new beginning. Not like they just master anything, but they're like on the track to to innovate and to join the movement in a whole different way. And what what kind of people um, typically join the Harvard University class? Yeah, it, uh, what I teach is at the um, it's the division of continuing education. So, so typically, it's mid-career folks. Um, and uh, before I taught, uh, uh, before I teach at Harvard, I taught at UC Berkeley, um, and it was the same profile. And I got even some ministers, um, you know, ambassadors, mayors, I um, governmental officials, professors. So there's like six circular economy. The, uh, departments that were started by my alumni, which I'm very proud of. Um, uh, legislation in several countries was um, crafted, or uh, but some of my students participated. Some of my students have started uh, companies. Many have left their careers, big companies, and started uh, different mm-hmm. uh, opportunities. Some become consultants. Um, but yeah, I would say about uh, 60% uh, female, 40% male. Um, Mystery executive, some senior uh, people as well, and a few kind of more younger folks that really get it and they just want to, you know, uh, leapfrog uh, all the other sustainability courses and come straight there to, to this way of thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. Let me ask you this. What advice would you give to someone who is a, they could be a new sustainability or ESG leader at a big kind of enterprise and big business? 
what is there anything that you think they should like stop doing or start doing because their role is really interesting i think being almost in charge of their company's approach to or contribution but let me take a pause is that what advice would you give to say new or existing sustainability and esg leaders in in, in businesses well i would say question a lot of the assumptions and review your, the questions you're asking because uh, sometimes they are seeking uh, answers for questions that are not ideal. Also, if they are in positions of communicating this to the public, um, uh, humility and and uh, transparency. There is um, there's been a kind of a uh, um, um, a lot of people that got into ESCA sustainability from marketing. Uh, they get a little bit too eager uh, in terms of explaining and exaggerating and blowing up planes. And I think people are getting more and more savvy. Legislators too, by the way, and this, we saw in the UK some some cases recently with um, um, some banks having to pull out their advertising and so on for exaggerated environmental claims. So that's another big big topic, you know, greenwashing. Um, you know, now this this green hushing where people are going the other extreme and not even telling the environmental things they're doing. Um, so that's an area of learning for I think for for all of us as well how we communicate this. To but I think uh, humility and transparency are good allies there. And any myths around sustainability and the regenerative economy you can bust for us that you think like people kind of latch onto? I think I might have busted a few already. Um, yeah, that like this idea that uh, doing less harm is what needs to be done. It's a it's, it's a big one because that's really the wrong question, right? Like. Uh, you go to a doctor saying, how could I be a little bit less sick? You know, or, I mean, we could do a, analogies uh, to no end. As, it's not a, really an ideal question. Um, um, the, the the big elephant in the room of materials, you know, material flow. We live in West Barcelona, material girl, material world. We live in a material world. And this um, materials flow in through the economy. They have a footprint. They have value. They have embedded energy, embedded carbon, you know, embedded labor, everything. And that's really the work is to steward those those materials as well, not only focus on what comes out of the, you know, the tailpipe of cars and, uh, and ships and whatnot. Um, so that's another big one. Uh, pay attention to that. Um, um, another myth, for instance, is that the circular economy is the, the economy of recycling, the recycling economy. No, uh, actually, recycling is the least valuable strategy in the circular economy. Why? Because we only recover atoms and molecules. Think about it. You have a, a glass bottle and you recycle it, great, but you just recover some molecules. All the uh, design, the labor, the shipping, everything else, all the rest of the value is gone. So, uh, 80% of the value of uh, the circular economy, 80% of the impact, environmental impact of anything, is in the design phase. So going upstream is, is uh, you know, very important. So um, all those are big ahas and big, uh, you know, mind-blown uh, mind moments for, for a lot of people that take these courses because there's so much focus on precisely the opposite. Let me hold on to that thought for a moment around that mind-blown moment for others because I think you've done a huge amount to drive the elimination of single-use plastics and to teach others about the regenerative economy and really I had a sense that you've dedicated your life to this 
um, and, and, and to these goals. But I imagine it's not always been easy. And I'm curious how you've kind of cultivated your own resilience in these environments, because plenty of people have a mind blown moment. And then it's about how do we translate that into a way of living differently and embracing this new knowledge? Because when you were talking earlier about um, when you're teaching people, it feels like a bit, um, excuse the analogy, but everyone sees this tip of the iceberg and you're really just showing them an underwater telescope to really see the depths of things. Um, but I imagine for you, working in these environments for you know many years and dedicating your career to it, you've had to you know, cultivate your resilience. Um, do you have any advice for others working in this space who want to make a change that come up against what feels like brick walls? Because I think resiliency in this space is, is, is interesting to explore. It's something I mentioned in my courses. I ask everybody to connect with their why, what they think in the course, what they care about these things, and go deeper and deeper and deeper into that why. And it gets really personal, really specific, you know. And hold on to that because resilience is, is a problem. And um, we're all very um, you know, anxious. Uh, so that's scared and so that's angry and all kinds of feelings come to us when we see the way we, all of us, it's not, we cannot point the finger to somebody, like all of us have um, built this amazing society with all the advantages that it has, but also the potential, you know, uh, dangers that it has. So that's a very insightful and powerful question. It's one of the questions of my age. Eco-anxiety is a thing. I you know, I hold Ask Me Anything sessions on Zoom periodically for my students and alumni. And when I started these, I thought people would come and ask questions about, you know, whatever, technical or things or assignments or whatever. But consistently, people want reassurance and want um, help in building that resilience. You know, my wife is a, a eco-anxiety uh, facilitator. And, you know, I had some teachers that I had how they, um, you know, just are, use the energy that comes from connecting deeply with what's happening in our world, not shutting it down, but not being birthed by it, not being just, you know, it's like um, high our energy that can fuel your work, but can also um, bury you. So that's a skill that takes some practice and some inner work. Um, I, uh, rec I would recommend the work of Joanna Macy, um, who talks about that quite a bit given a historical context as well for a moment we're living in you know some people call it the great turning some people call it the anthropocene that helps us run and uh, ground ourselves in those challenges um and you know and spend some time in nature as well spend some time you know connecting to the source so that we can restore ourselves and find the sanity and find the strength necessary to to continue to work with humility, with compassion for ourselves and for others, and with the resilience that is necessary to to make a you know a life choice in a career. I think that's very very sound advice. Thank you. Um, we've talked a bit earlier around the advice for people say leading sustainability and ESG agendas at their organisations, um, but I I wanted to just take a moment to think about what about everybody else. So people um most people are working most people have a job they might be self-employed or, or work in an organization do you have any thoughts on or advice or 
a perspective to share with, you know, everybody's kind of a people and their individual contribution, not just somebody that's kind of a leading this field, um, but for people just um, part of an organization, what they can do. Yeah, we're talking about our own power, right? The power that we really have is to change ourselves. And that's about it. Well, let's think about it. How we may be in the position of, you know, VP of sustainability and that gives us greater power. But ultimately the acid test is what the way we transform ourselves and our lives, you know, and I continuously pay attention to that, uh, in my, in my own house. And I don't do anything or, or preach anything that I don't do at home or try to do at home, do my best. And in the struggle, and it's going to be a struggle, you know, we're all parents and busy people, etc. the struggle you're going to learn and you're going to grow. And, um, it's amazing also the ripple that are sent into the world from doing the small thing. Like just, I've been trying to live, um, for instance, buy used everything, uh, much if I can buy secondhand everything and also avoid single use plastics. I mean, just in doing that, I, you know, inspire a lot of people, touch a lot of people in, and in this exercise, uh, you know, uh, sit, sit somebody like, um, it's very, one thing I don't allow in my students, I'm not allow, I'm very permissive, but I invite them not to use the word consumer ever to refer to themselves and not to use the, and to avoid the word consumer and consumption job and see what words emerge. Do you consume your food or do you enjoy it? Or do you, is, is, could it be a, a thing called consumer electronics? I mean, that term in itself is pretty weird because the other thing we consume is things like a sandwich, right? Electronics should be used. Uh, but the word consumer being used for, for us, for ourselves, is very diminishing. And I think the moment we take on the role, okay, I don't want to be a consumer. I want to be what? You know, just leave that person open. I think it's very enriching, eye-opening, empowering, and it does have an impact for sure. Um, I like, I'm going to take that um, one on board definitely around um, being a consumer. It's funny in the world of product development, um, we'll often call the um, people interacting with the products you're building users. And I think that there's only kind of a two industries where you call, um, I guess, customers, users. I think that's the dr drug dealers will call people users and product managers. <laughs> Customer is better. Uh, it explains that there's uh, an exchange of value, right? Like an exchange of value. Consumer, it's just like, wow. Who is it? I don't know. It conjures up all kinds of negative images for me. The, the same for me in users and product management. What does the user want? It's like, uh, let's call them something else. But anyway, I am so you're writing a book right now, yes. The Meaning Economy. Indeed. Yes. Well, it's, um, it's uh, this way of thinking that I'm describing. Um, and the hacking and in addition to hack the the operating system of our society and the fall of the economy. Well, ultimately it's about you know, changing the way we think. We're always going to reflect back to to uh, you know, to our to our brains and to our beliefs and worldviews and so on. And yeah, it's a work on progress. Can't wait to get it out. But really one of the first to know. Awesome. Well we'll have to get you back on the podcast to tell us all about it when you when you release it with the world. Um very excited. Um, let, before we finish up, I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. Um, and this really just gives me an opportunity to be a little bit more nosy. Um, 
let me ask you, where do you go for inspiration? And I could be for your day job, but just like, I'm quite curious about where you go to feed your, your creative brain. Nature. Yeah. I just go be in the water. Um, could be a forest. Um, uh, play with kids. I have twins. I have six years old. So, um, it just, uh, that's the places where I go. Please describe your desk for, for our audience. Are you super tidy, Manuel? Are you, what's your desk like? It looks like, uh, you know, there was a tsunami and then an earthquake after that. <laughs> I'm glad I asked that. Oh, wow, but both don't tell anybody. Disasters. Don't tell anybody. But I'm always tidying it up. It's like a, it's like the ebb and flow of tidying it up and then it gets out of control. I go, just came back from a trip and, you know, it doesn't take much, but you know, I, I have good intentions for my desk always. In another life, what would your career have been? Um, explorer. If I take you on a trip down memory lane, can you remember like the first work thing that you were really proud of or something that you, you kind of uh, did that you could have felt proud of for the first time? I found uh, water in the desert. I was in Sahara desert and I got really intent of finding water, I think it will be a good sign. First, that I was able to find water. And second, that, uh, you know, that uh, there was going to be good fortune. It was like, an, I was looking for an omen. and started digging in the, in the sand and I did find water. And that made me incredibly proud. And that, um, it's a moment that I mentioned once that I was at a conference when I was at the beginning of my career. I was within groups and we're all asked the same question and everybody was professor in Harvard or whatever, or had multiple kids. I didn't have int to show in my career, but I went back to the moment and showed that, that I have found one into that. And that was, and, uh, that was having first everybody. At that time, <laughs> I didn't have much to Wonderful. show because, you know, we're all, we're all beginners and I've been always beginning, starting things anew. So I'm used to being a beginner. I have, I had to hold on to things like that. And what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oof, so many come to my mind, but um, I think it's uh, to love. Just so open to love and be loved. I think that's the best because I've ever been given. Maybe it's not related to business, but um, should, uh, I mean, it should be. There should be, there's not should be places where we can show up like that. Why not? I think the most precious asset all of us have are our, our time and how we spend it, where we spend it and bringing I guess our whole selves to that. Yes, yes, it's important. I've got our last question, and I ask everybody this: on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you, Manuel? Well, I want to say that I'm. You know, if I was a child, if I was six and my kids, I wouldn't be weird at all. I'd ask, I'll give myself a, a zero if I was six, but at my age, I'll give myself a ten. <laughs> what an answer thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you it's been a pleasure so concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice and of course start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com <laughs>